No, I think we're done now. I think the weather moment has passed. <laughs> so you're doing? I mean, we can rant about weather. I don't mind. No, it's okay. Well, I'm always down for good. W I'm always down for old men shouting about clouds. <laughs> Well, see, what happens is it rains in Boston and then we lose internet. And this has happened. I've been working here for almost four years now, and it has happened almost every time there's a significant storm, the internet is spotty. And the reason is we get, we get our internet, well, maybe not the reason, but we happen to get our internet in Boston via lasers from a company called TowerStream. So they have like a laser that goes to like the top of the Prudential Tower or Hancock Tower or something like that and carries us and, and brings us very fast internet in that way, which seems magical to me, but that's how it works. And every time the internet goes out in the rain, I say, oh, the internet's out because it's raining. And then somebody in the office who shall remain nameless says, that's not how lasers work. And this person's not incorrect, <laughs> yet neither am I <laughs> because every time it rains we lose internet. So the, the actual working theory is that when it rains, it gets windy and maybe like the thing that secures the laser gets like blown around a little more and goes out of, out of spec for where it needs to be or whatever. So hopefully we don't lose internet. Hopefully it's not too windy or rainy. Hopefully the lasers continue to work. Now you were saying you're building rack with rust. Just that's the level of abstraction that we are focusing on right now. So building a thing that allows you to write web apps in Rust does the communication with the server, that kind of thing? Yeah, the, the middleware stack, basically. Right. Um, yeah, so basically, I don't know if you saw, if you saw all of the stuff that's been happening around um, futures and async I.O. Nope. So a little while back, by a little while, I mean like this was a few weeks ago, I think, at most, uh, they announced a new, a new futures library for Rust. That's interesting. So, because there's many, many different approaches you can take to providing abstractions for asynchronous computation, futures is one of them. Uh, futures are similar, basically the same thing as promises in JavaScript, but it's basically a val. It wraps a value and says this may uh, or may not be there in at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the uh, collection equivalent is called stream, usually. So uh, there were two libraries that have come out for Rust. The first is called Futures RS, which just provides the base level interfaces. Now, what's interesting about, about Rust's futures. So in, in async I.O., there are sort of two models that people talk about. There's the readiness model and the completion model. And so the readiness model is where you get informed, hey, like this socket is ready to be read from. You can now read from it without blocking. Whereas the completion model is you say that you want to read from the socket and then you get notified when the read is complete. Okay. Uh, and futures usually get modeled in sort of the in sort of the what is analogous to the completion form, where you give it a, where you give it what is effectively a callback. Yep. Um, and that callback gets run when it's there. And what ends up happening with Rust's futures is it's actually closer to the readiness model. So instead of the, uh, like we still have, you still have all of the combinators that you'd want. So the main ones being map and and then. Map taking just a normal synchronous function and doing it on an asynchronous value and then and then taking a value and returning an asynchronous computation on it. But we don't have like the equivalent of what would be like a wait or for each or like when this is ready to do stuff. Uh, instead, there's a, the, the, the lowest level uh, method is called poll. 
And what poll will do is either give you the value if it's ready or tell you that it's not ready and somehow arrange for itself to uh, be notified when it is ready. Um, but like it doesn't provide the actual event loop that's responsible for all of this. Uh, the futures library doesn't actually provide it, doesn't provide that. And there's no assumption that like this is going to be an abstraction on top of threads or any other form of, of a, a, asynchronous, uh, asynchronicity, asynchrony, whatever the word is. <laughs> and that gets, and the intention is that gets provided by a higher level library. So like the futures library itself isn't necessarily like it's something that you're intended to be aware of that you're intended to use the APIs provided by in terms of like combining futures and doing stuff to futures, but you're not necessarily intended to use it directly because at least to get the, to get the values out of it, the intention is like how you actually then go about getting the values out of it is in the domain of like, that's something web servers care about, but it's not something that you as an application author care about. You right. care about just returning futures, and then we figure out how to how to actually schedule those and run them. Now, the reason they did all of that is that it lets it be a, a completely zero-cost abstraction. And uh, there were some benchmarks shown on a very naive web server. Not the sort of thing that you would want to actually build applications in, but doing the minimum amount of work that a web server needs to do for a Hello World benchmark, which is basically parse HTTP and... Uh, include the relevant information and in the hello world test which is a benchmark that i completely hate uh <laughs> because it doesn't give much useful information but it the intention if you if you buy into it the intention is that it's supposed to show the amount of overhead that a web framework or a web server has and in these benchmarks the results built on futures both in the synchronous and pipeline benchmarks blew everything else out of the water including the fastest, the, the, the next two fastest competitors are written in Go and Java. Now, well, I don't necessarily think that's a great benchmark for measuring the performance of web servers because there's just too much stuff going on there that has inherent overhead that like a Hello World benchmark encourages skipping or making lazy in ways that would have actual uh, performance hits in real world usage. However, for something like a futures library, that is an abstraction where it makes a lot of sense to measure the inherent overhead. And so the answer in this case is none. So it does, it does everything without dynamic dispatch and, and without allocate. Well, there is, uh, according to the authors, exactly one allocation and one dynamic dispatch um, in a place that costs. So it, it's, it becomes effectively zero cost. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway, so with that, and then the level on top of that is called Tokyo, which is sort of the one-stop shop for async I/O and Rust built on top of futures. So now that that's there, the next sort of step that we're taking is Rack and Rust. So figuring out a middleware layer, basically, and a common protocol for servers to adhere to. How do you decide what goes into that? Like, what are the what are the appropriate middleware type things that this library is going to take care of? Well, so the library, well, the library—it's like there's going to be probably a bunch of different libraries that are, that are part of this current initiative that is happening. Like the base library won't provide any middlewares; it'll just be the like, hey, here's the infrastructure for having middlewares. Okay. But one of the the approach, one of so one of the things, like this is all very fresh, and I'm still in the like experimenting with APIs and validating ideas. But uh, we had a chat yesterday. Some of the other people who are working on this. And one of the things that we sort of are agreeing on is that looking at like middlewares in Ruby, people try to shoehorn too many things into middleware. Hmm. So we need an additional abstraction level 
that like does a better job of doing what people are trying to use middlewares for. Like middleware in my mind is something that the level of abstraction it operates on is HTTP. Okay. So it like does transformations on requests and responses. So some really good examples of like sort of your traditional middleware would be content negotiation, uh, gzipping. We have a middleware to do head requests mm-hmm. in, in Rails or in Rack. So stuff like that. Forcing SSL? Yeah, that could be a, uh, that could be a middleware. Yeah, definitely. What about things like, so like I'm trying to think of like middleware that I've written and added to apps and been like, yeah, this seems like a good place to do this. So like when you're writing a JSON API and you're processing requests and in my app, I don't want to deal with like whatever format we have for timestamps, right? So we have an epic, epoch, however you say that. Uh, Or you have maybe just a string that you have to parse or something like that. Right. And so like I've written middleware that looks for like all fields that end with underscore at and parses, right? And then you get like the actual objects you want to use in your application at that point. That's not HTTP. That's just like right. application level logic. And I stuck it in rack because I know what happens with every request. And that's what I want to have happen with every request. Right. So there is one interesting assumption you're making there. Mm-hmm. And this is part, this gets at sort of why we want to break some of this part. So your assumption there is also that parameters have been parsed. Um, right. And that, and that the result is a hash map. Yes. And that's just a thing that is there to be accessed. Yes. So there's a couple of things there. Like whether. <laughs> So whether or not you want to be able to just directly access something as a hash map, A, can vary on the, on the request type, or on the, yeah, on the content type of the request. Like, so a lot of middleware, both on both ends of the stack, when I say both ends, I mean on dealing with requests and dealing with responses. Too many middleware in the Ruby world uh, specifically like want the body to be there. Okay. There's a lot of interesting work you can do. Uh, you can get pretty far in the processing cycle without having to touch the body. As long as everything is structured in a way that's like, hey, I'm gonna like put all of the work that only requires the headers first. Mm-hmm. Now, with requests, I think it's probably okay to have, like as you get closer to the application, have middleware that are like, and now I need the body. Because one of the kind of canonical examples of a thing that probably lives best in a middleware, but maybe not, I'm not sure, is a CSRF protection. Okay. And so you need a couple of things. So first of all, you need the session. Mm-hmm. And again, and this is another one of these things where I'm like, you need the session. And I say that. And we as Rails developers are like, oh, yeah, and you just get the session. like that. Like, right. and, and we think of that as like that's just a thing that's there. Right. But that's there's actually require a, lot a lot of other things, right? Like cookies right. and whatnot. Well, yeah, well and right, or, but that's the thing. Yeah. And that's a trade-off because if you're storing the session entirely in the cookie, then you have a, a strict two kilobyte uh, limit on the amount of data that can be stored in the session. Right. Right. And so but yeah, so that's it. So you may you may just need the cookie and uh, and then decoding stuff or you may need a database connection in order to do that, which to establish that database connection, you might have needed to make additional decisions already. But anyway, so you, you get you'll need the session. And then the other thing you'll need is depending on the type of request, you may or may not need access to the parsed request body. Specifically, in the case of web forms, you would want the 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 parsed uh, the uh, parsed request body. Right. You want to verify that the token that got submitted there is the appropriate token. Right. Now, there's an argument for like, just put it in the URL. Uh, uh yeah. Which is like, <laughs> actually probably fine. Either like, because if you're doing if you're not doing a web form, you'd put it in in a header. Right. 
and there's no reason not to do it that way if you're if you're doing anything other than a web form for a web form it's like yeah just put it in the url it's fine hmm i'm trying to think through things yeah i mean i guess that's fine my only reaction to that was like i've been places that like just stick csrf things on all urls like as a matter of course like here's a token and it's on the end on the end of every link on the end of every form post on the end of everything as long as you're doing it only on posts that's fine right anything a user might copy and paste somewhere you do not want to include a token on the url correct yes no definitely anything that's a get request should never have csrf because csrf makes no sense in the context of a get request right all you're doing is leaking <laughs> all you're doing is either improperly using http and mutating state on get requests or leaking or potentially leaking the tokens by people copying and pasting links to other places right um which i've seen before so anyway but either way neither here nor there the so the thing that i'm wanting to do is sort of separate out um the idea of the terminology that we landed on that may or may not actually survive were transformers and providers. Transformers being the more traditional middleware-y middlewares. And then providers being the things that tend to get shoehorned into middleware but don't necessarily actually fit there. And I think one of the best examples of a thing that is currently represented as a middleware in Rails but absolutely should be in this other structure is checking out a database connection from a connection pool. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Rust has some secret sauce here. So uh, the, the what I'm kind of imagining for providers, and this, I realized after some conversations that maybe making this comparison isn't the best idea because it draws too many parallels that I think this is a fundamentally different thing. But like, basically, I'm imagining a form of like Java-style DI. Okay. Um, so you register your functions, which will take a request, and the idea is that the this provider caches per request. So your function takes a request and returns a thing that can that can ref, be re, dereferenced into the value that you want. Now, the thing that makes the sort of secret sauce that Rust provides that like makes this ergonomic and makes it possible to use this in places that required a middleware before is that we have drop. So we have the ability to deterministically run some code when a value is no longer needed. So we don't need a lexical scope to check out a value from a connection pool and then check it back in after, at the end we are able to check out a value from the connection pool and automatically have it go back in when it's no longer being used. So it no longer needs to be in a middleware. So it can just be, hey, give me a thing, a connection from the connection pool, and you don't have to remember to, to return it to the pool when you're done with it. And because of that nature of Rust, like we can fit a lot more things into this provider style than you could in other languages. And one of the big benefits of that is that, because one of the pain points, I think, with middleware is that order matters like a lot. Right. And it's easy to get wrong. And the method that we have for communicating between a middleware and another middleware or a middleware and an application is uh, sticking magic keys into this hash. Yep. Uh, which feels super wrong. <laughs> and order, st like, this doesn't make order matter less, but this does make order automatic. Because any provider that relies on other providers has to request the, the other providers. So if getting the session relies on a database connection you don't have to make sure that the session parser middleware comes after the establishes database connection middleware right yeah we've had these problems in clearance before where like things change in rails and then like where we're inserting our middleware which gets you the current user where we're inserting that middleware 
is no longer valid. And then it's like, well, why were we inserting it in this place in the first place? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's just yeah. put it at the end and see if that works. It works. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll keep it at the end. That sounds fine. And I think that's another, like, that's actually a good example of a thing that is like a super specific app level concern, but yep. I do think can fit into this provider mechanism, right? Getting the current user. Yeah. But then, and then you'll still have your sort of pure HTTP layer middleware and order will still be very important for them. But I think it becomes better at that point just because a, like I think when you're dealing with like, so I'm going to use this as an example because it's, it's very self-contained, but, uh, just a, a middleware that computes a content length header is an absolutely abysmally bad idea and nobody should ever do it ever. But because it makes a really simple example, let's say you have a middleware that gzips your your body and a middleware that uh, adds a content length header. It's very important that the content length header middleware comes before the gzipping or above the gzipping, the body middleware. So that way you calculate the length on the gzipped body and not the, the uncom uh, uncompressed body. But I think it's a lot easier to reason about with those types of middleware, the order that they need to go in. And it's also just if we shrink the stack... If we move as much as possible out of that stack, the places where order is really important, it's so much easier to get right because, like, you only have to worry about ten middleware, not fifty. Right. Yeah. And there are times when I when you like do what's the rake task rake rake middleware rake middleware where you run that, and I wonder like how much of this is there because like that's just where it got inserted, and how much of this is there because it needs to be there. And there's like a there's an example of like. What's the example I'm thinking of? Like it's a gzip middleware plus etag middleware, and if you get that order wrong, then you end yep. up etagging the wrong. You end up etagging the uncompressed thing, but you're sending the compressed thing. Like that kind of stuff gets kind of crazy, and that and the order does matter there, but it's hard to see in the sea of you know I don't know what the default middleware. Is. I think the default middleware stack shrunk in Rails five, if I'm correct. But anyway, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, and you end up with like there is. Um, so this is one of the other things that we were talking about as a pain point when it comes to ordering of middleware was so one of the big pain points, right, is is when you do need something to happen at a specific point in the stack, what people will do is they'll they'll say, like, insert before this other middleware from the default stack, because that's where my middleware needs to be. Yeah, that's what happened in clearance. Yep. But then that other middleware moves. Yep, exactly. And now your middleware is in the wrong place. Yep. <laughs> uh which actually probably just means that you were that you were saying insert before this thing, but you actually meant to insert before this other thing, or really, or really, I guess you probably wanted to say I need to run before all of these things, maybe or after all of these things. Anyway, uh, our solution is going to be you can either put something at the very beginning of the stack, you can put something at the very end of the stack. There will be no insert before, insert after, and if you need something more granular than that, then what you do is you take the default stack and you explicitly put that in your code so that we can't break you. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good solution. Which means that at that point we no longer like we lose control to the ability to change that automatically later. But you're now doing something that that would potentially break. So, right. But hopefully the idea is for that type of stuff you'd be using these provider things, like things that have dependencies like that. Hopefully, maybe. Right. I mean, just most things would go there. I think. Right. Uh, unless it's a very HTTP specific thing. Yeah, there's some, there's going to be definitely be gray areas. Uh, session in particular is one that I'm not sure what I want to do with that, because like if sessions were read only, which would make them completely useless. But pretend for a minute that sessions magically were there and you just needed to read the session. A read only mm -hmm. session fits very nicely into, the, into that provider model. The fact that you can write to it 
and depending on how you're storing the session, like that's going to modify potentially the database, potentially the request, and potentially both. And when and how that happens is important. I'm not entirely sure. Like that one's a very fuzzy. Like, hmm, where should this live? If you're if you're just talking about a pure cookie session, that fits actually much more nicely into your traditional middleware form. Although I'm not sure how you communicate then. Like, and here's the session that you can modify down to the application, because uh, I don't want to provide just the magic hash map. So that one's going to be that that one's sort of murky, and there's definitely always going to be sort of the gray areas. And and again, this is super super early in like the design lifecycle, so I'm still figuring a lot of things out on it. But I do feel pretty confident in in the general direction for some of the things that are more clearly on one side or the other, like gzipping the response body or checking out a database connection from a connection pool. Yeah, sounds like an interesting thing to explore anyway, and see how see how that fares when it hits the real world. Yeah, and it's all gonna be around async I/O, so streaming everything um, sort of by default. Cool. Yeah, it'll be good. What else? So Vim eight came out. Oh yeah, Vim eight. Yes, yes. So all of your reasons for using NeoVim are now completely invalid. Um, pretty close. Yeah, and I didn't like when I published that article. So we'll link to it in the show notes. But I published an article that's basically like. I've switched to NeoVim. I've been using it for eight months. I haven't really noticed that I'm using NeoVim except for the fact that this one particular use case I have is now much faster. And the particular use case I had was I was using Syntastic with Vim, and I feel like that runs fast enough on Ruby files that it's not a problem. But once I got to a compiled language, it was a, it would lock up my editor every time I, the, I wrote the file because I'm trying to have it give me warnings in my editor, and it wasn't doing that asynchronously because Vim had, which, had no support for that, really. Without which tax. language was this for? Elixir. Elixir's compiler is slow enough that it was noticeable? Yeah, and I think various things impact compile time like how many things do you have aliased when there are aliases it has to like compile more things because it doesn't know how exactly you're using them it gets yeah. faster with every release but it's it's definitely noticeable scala was the language i had the same pain but specifically scala because scala c was just slow and there's lots of other things too like um somehow i must have some sort of markdown processor linter installed because every time i tried to write like you automatically get opted into these linters if you have the right linter installed somewhere. It's probably an npm package I had to install for some reason. And like every time I would go to write a markdown file, it would just like hang. Like oh oh, it's doing that stupid thing. How do I how do I disable this again? And then finally, I just switched over to NeoVim, and it's not a problem. Um, well, I had to switch to NeoVim and NeoMake because Syntastic doesn't support the way that Neo the way that NeoVim does its asynchronous jobs. But anyway. Um, as soon as I published that article, people were like, well, she really wants to be on the podcast. Hello, kitty. <laughs> Get off. As she will not stop jumping on me. <laughs> as soon as I as soon as I published that article, people were like, well, what about Vim 8? And I was like, uh, I didn't know that was a thing. And it's not out yet. And then like two weeks later, it was like, it's out. <laughs> yep. And it has an asynchronous job type thing um, where it can communicate between a background with a background process with JSON, I think. But Syntastic, as far as when I checked the other day, had not been updated to use it. But a couple of issues where people were like, I want async support were responded to with basically like when Vim has the async job stuff, we'll update. So at some point, maybe I'll switch back to to Vim 8 just to be on Vim proper, I guess. Well, and right. So Vim more or less has feature parity with NeoVim now. But the reasons for NeoVim are much more than just like we want to add features. It was all it also a lot of it had to do with the management and longevity of the project. Correct. And I think that they've made their point. I'm not saying that they're done, but I, I think message was received. 
based on what we're seeing in Vim 8, which was which also included a decent amount of code cleanup and included some stuff for testing plugins. Um, did it include patches from other contributors? Yes, it did. Yep, there's a lot oh. of patches from other contributors in there. And it's, it's, I don't think it's ever been that other contributors couldn't contribute to Vim. It's that when there were big things that people wanted to do, like the asynchronous job stuff, there were several, there were at least two patches that were that were submitted to Vim to do asynchronous patches. And they weren't up to Bram's, uh, he's the maintainer of Vim, up to whatever he had in mind for doing this feature. All right. And instead of like saying what it was he had in mind or like providing feedback on the thing, it was just like, we'll link to the to the threads in the show notes. I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I think the impression was basically like, this isn't the way I want to do it. And then the impression the people who submitted the thing got was that like he was going to go off and do it his own way, which is totally fine. But except that like, but he never did. Well, he, he did. Eventually he eventually did, did but... and you don't. We don't know what's going on and like why these solutions aren't the right thing. And then people were getting frustrated about. I don't know, like, one of the things they did was, like, NeoVim did was, like, eliminate support for a bunch of, like, really old operating systems that it probably doesn't need to support. Um, right. They allow you to write plugins in... What are they? Anything. Is it anything? But there's, like, a specific... Well, because plugins communicate over uh, JSON RPC now, right? Yes. And so because they're separate from the actual editor, yeah. they can be any language they want. Structured communication to and from any programming language. Remote plugins run as co-processes that communicate with NeoVim safely and asynchronously. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and the other thing that people often cite about NeoVim, and I mentioned in the article I wrote, was the terminal. So it has a terminal emulator yes. in it. Well, and Vim 8 does not have a terminal emulator, correct? No, no it does not. And in the article, I was like, I kind of loosely tried to use this terminal emulator, and it never stuck. I went back to Team. I went back, I went back to Tmux. And so after I wrote that article, I spent a week living without tmux with the terminal emulator and vim and they were like getting it configured so it was sane took me about a day but even then like it's just uh i was talking to chris toomey who's a big vim user in our boston office and he was like yeah it's just it's just uncanny valley like it's it's like a terminal enough that you expect it to behave the way you want it to but then it's not quite a terminal and why don't you just use tmux and get an actual terminal um so I went back. I've to never, I've never been a big Tmux fan personally. I don't use Tmux. What do you use when you need a terminal? Uh, terminal? Colon bang. <laughs> colon bang. I use colon bang for one-off things, and if I need to do like super terminal things, I just do Control Z to uh, background Vim, do my terminal things, and then after you to go back to Vim. What about running your tests? Um, colon bang, run my tests. So like, if the tests take a long time, you just sit there staring at the output from your tests. No, I make, well, A, make it so the tests don't take a long time. <laughs> uh, and B, I guess I will occasionally use, uh, if, I, if I do have a long running process, I'll use a, a tab from um, iTerm. Yeah. I mean, I just use, I use Dispatch, and that's probably the chief, like, like, I just don't want to lose that context of what I'm looking at in the editor. So I'll just, like, the, the two things I will do is run my tests with Dispatch, which will open a terminal, run the tests, and if everything passes, just immediately closes it. And I'm like, great, it passed. I don't need to deal with anything and if it fails it takes the output from the shell and puts it in the uh, split in a, in a split down the bottom from vim which i find pretty nice and then the other thing i use it for is git i just couldn't i could never get into the using fugitive for yeah, everything i just I, I just use fugitive or or colon bang yeah so i couldn't quite get into that i've been trying out git shell which is a thing that um george brockhurst one of my yeah. one of our co your former coworker, my coworker in new york um so i've been trying that out so i have like a keyboard shortcut that i can hit in tmux that just automatically opens me the git shell split and then i can close that and 
goes away, does what I need. So I'm still back in Tmux. I don't think the terminal. I don't know. I'm not. I also I also experimented with Emacs during all of this because I was like, oh, they have like all these fun things that they can do with their editor. Yeah, but I just well, because it's, it's an operating system. I just can't figure it out. Like, <laughs> I did use Emacs when I was in college, but I've forgotten everything except like the most basic keyboard shortcuts that are you know basically everywhere in OS 10 and things like that. You know, Control A, Control E, like all those basic things I can do. But like when it comes to operating, <laughs> like I opened up the I, I installed like just basic Emacs through Homebrew with OS 10 support, so it had like a GUI version of Emacs. And I opened that up and it was like, press this key shortcut to go to the tutorial. And then I couldn't even get, I was like, I'm pressing, <laughs> I'm pressing that keyboard combination. Go to the tutorial. And it just wouldn't go to the tutorial. Wasn't that one of the jokes of what Emacs stands for? Escape, uh, control, alt, meta shift. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to, it was like control L or control H or something like that. And I was like, I'm doing that. Anyway. No, so so here's my super terrible reason as to why I don't use Tmux, even though I know I'd probably be slightly more efficient if I did. What's your Tmux leader key? Uh, control S. Boom. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's different. Most people say Control A. Yeah, but then how do you go to the beginning of the line? Well, that's not even what it is for me. No, so because okay. that one, <laughs> my answer for that one is Control F zero. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so. Control A, uh, a, a lesser known usage is if you have um, a percent or percent colon H or any of the like vims expand to some function of the current file and or position of the cursor mm -hmm. in command mode, Control A will expand that. Uh, okay. And when I'm doing things that I have a little script that's actually most is broken now in more cases than not, and it's a horrendous shell script, but it's basically like try to figure out what language this is and yep. try to figure out how to run the tests. And then if it's a language where I cared enough to hyper-optimize for this, make us terrible assumptions to make the tests run slightly faster. So like if it was a file that I'm pretty sure is going to be run with RSpec, skip bundle exec and just assume that I have the latest version of RSpec installed and the project is on the latest version of RSpec. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and when I'm doing something that my little script doesn't work for, It'll be, you know, like Ruby hyphen I test that file, but I'm still going to want to switch to another pane and be able to do control up, enter and run the test really fast. So I do control A to expand that. And that doesn't work. Right. If I use, the, if I use the, the, the leader that everybody wants and then I'm like, OK, fine, I just won't use that. What key combination am I not using that is convenient to get to? Control S. No, control S does a thing. Control S. It like freezes the terminal or something like that, I think. No, I have it bound with. I remember specifically looking at Control S. What do I have Control S bound to? The Thoughtbot setup actually has, I think it has two leader keys. You can use either Control S or you can use the default of Control B. Because using defaults when you don't have a reason not to is, is a pretty good idea. Oh, so. apparently Control S is unbound. I thought Control S did something. Okay, maybe I'll try Tmux and just do <laughs> There you go. Well, now you've ruined my curmudgeonly <laughs> argument. <laughs> There's also my argument of like, uh, I have very... So I use the mouse to scroll long terminal output, and I know, yep. how, to, I know how to do leader back... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You and, can, and use, you can enable like, mouse modes. Yeah, I know. I just have muscle memory, and I have to <laughs> learn things. This is also why I don't use pry, even though I know I should be using pry, oh. but I just do, do, I do puts everywhere. Oh. <laughs> so they, they, you know, the nice thing about frontline debugging 
I never hate a language because of its lack of debugger support. Because <laughs> you can always print something. Print line debugging <laughs> works everywhere. It's true. Works better in some languages than others. <laughs> print line debugging actually kind of sucks in, in Java. Right. And they have... They don't have, a, they don't have like a dot inspect method. And your IDE that you're using has a pretty good debugger. So. Yeah, I never use those. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I don't know. It, well, it's, one, it, it's just one of those, like, I know, I, I know I'd be better off using Pry. There's no good reason for me not to use Pry other than just muscle memory. And it's just like when I have an issue, by the time I, like, I did do it the other day when I w- had been spending 15 minutes trying to print line debug something. I'm like, yeah, why don't I just put some Pry in here? But usually by the time I think to use Pry, I've already solved the problem with print line debugging. All right, then. I just use Pry for basically everything. Um, seems fine like today I was dealing with like I knew I needed to do some time zone conversions of stuff and I was like I had the test I wanted and I started writing the implementation I was like I have no idea what goes in this implementation I could look up the API docs or I could just put binding.pry here and just let the test run and screw around with it in the console in the context that I've already all I've already have set up from my test case like there was a bunch of setup I had to do so now all that setup is done boom right in there no puts debugging the one thing that always gets me though when i'm pairing with somebody who uses pry is we'll be debugging something and they'll put a pry somewhere and we'll have established like okay we figured out what we needed pry there for or like maybe we didn't but like we're no longer prying there we're going on to do a different thing but they'll leave the pry line there yeah and then we'll run the test and they'll be like oh control d control d control d three or four times every time it hits that pry line yeah and then do the thing and then we'll run the test again okay control d control I'm like delete the pry line we're not using it anymore oh my god <laughs> exit so in those situations i use exit dash program which will like kill the thing that's calling pry in the first place so it'll kill your entire test suite and then i go in and i delete the the thing yeah um which is the same thing to do right you don't need it there (laughs) (laughs) um i've also been known to check in binding.pry before which is uh, (laughs) fun yeah travis likes that particularly (laughs) um yeah yeah so like are you using vim8 no, because I, I forgot to check if it was in Homebrew yet. Uh, there was a patch yesterday. I don't know if it's actually... I imagine it's merged by now, but I'll, not sure. I'll probably end up running Brew Update in a few days, and I will get it that way. Yeah. Like, there's nothing in there that's like, oh my god, I'm dying for this because I don't do Scala anymore, and Rust-C runs really fast for just the checking that Syntastic does, so... I bet it would be even faster. Probably. <laughs> well, it'd be even more asynchronous. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it very specifically it would, would not, not be faster. Be faster. In <laughs> it fact, would it would, be, it would, it would be, be slower, probably. It'd be slightly, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a, a, a very slightly slower, but. Uh, <laughs> but you would not, you would notice that you are not hung up for that small millisecond when you try and change lines or something. Yes. Uh, there was, so actually, just random tangent before we wrap up okay. on, on editors and asynchronous stuff. So there's an editor written in Rust called Xi. Z something. It's spelled XI. It's a 20% project by somebody at Google. He gave a talk on it at RustConf. Oh, by the way, RustConf was amazing. I've never been as excited about the language as I am after RustConf. Anyway, he gave a talk about it, and one of the things he was talking about was, like, everything is asynchronous. And so it sort of got a similar model to how NeoVim wants the communication between, like, where the editor itself is basically a server and there are multiple front ends communicating via uh, JSON RPC, uh, like message passing event type things. Mm-hmm. And he was ta- He got into a little bit like some of the, okay, so what happens if you're waiting on 
let's I don't remember what I think it might have been syntax checking. It might have been might have been something more like re-indenting the file, something that would somehow edit the file. But then while you're waiting for that to complete because it's asynchronous, you do more edits and how you like get all of the resynchronization to happen. It was vaguely interesting. But uh, one of the things I've been pushing for a lot in Rust is higher kind of types. And one of the big concerns about adding higher kind of types to Rust, other than just it's complex and we don't necessarily know all of the, all of the effects it will have, it's also that like we don't want to turn into Haskell. And I've always dismissed that argument until this talk about an editor written in Rust went on a three-slide tangent about monoid homomorphisms. <laughs> okay. I'm like, all right, you have single-handedly convinced me our community is not yet ready for higher kind of types. <laughs> Sure. You, if, if you if if you can't not use the word homoid mono, monomorphism, higher kind no. of types is enough. <laughs> well, no, you don't like you don't it's get a, higher kind of types, which lets you actually have proper monoid homomorphisms in a language. Sure, I don't know what you just but said. Like, we, <laughs> that's my point, right? Right. <laughs> use words that normal people can understand. That's like the uh, if you go into the Elm thing and you say monad, they say it gets like the Slack bot replies and says, I think you mean, I don't know, whatever they signal. call it, signal or whatever, whatever they call it. Like they just refuse to embrace the like functional. Is that functional programming terminology or Haskell terminology or it's ML terminology? It's mathematics terminology. Yeah. So they refuse to embrace that and just say like, no, we're going to speak the language of like whatever. Oh, but it they is. have functor. Do they have in Elm? Do they call it Functor? Yeah, they have Functor. Oh, okay. Yeah, they have Functor, and they call. It, uh, may, actually, maybe they don't have Functor. I think that Elm might actually just have things that have a method called map. Because what Rust does as well, we have ad hoc monads and ad hoc functors where we just have we have things that we ha we have them. You just can't abstract over the concept of a functor or a monad. And it's a useful thing to be able to do, but like. So it's it's one of those. In, when I look at Haskell, it's like okay, so so you called it traversable and not mappable and flat mappable okay <laughs> right like where's where's the super where's the super hand wavy term that nobody will ever understand for traversable why does that get to have a name that just says what it is i don't kind know of. <laughs> kind of i mean traversing is still a very abstract concept but you know what i mean like like why not just call functor mappable that's the conversation we have when we were reading that haskell book the learn you a haskell and I was like, oh, it just means you can, why, does, why don't they just call it mappable? And, and it's, you know, it's ac academics. That's why. Yeah, um, yeah. that's a terrible reason. Well, I mean, it is not a terrible reason if you are an academic. <laughs> right. I'm not an academic. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, that just the talking about async editor stuff made me think of that talk. So random, random tangent, right? I'm done now. Okay. You want to wrap up? Yes, let's do that. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeyshed.fm slash 80. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes and Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bring!